My guest this week as a solo performer is a writer, actor, former boy soprano, voiceover artist, and a polyglot. In his group, the legendary Fire Sign Theater, he has recorded over 25 albums, but nominated for the Grammys three times, and created Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, called by many the greatest comedy album of all time. The Library of Congress added the album to the National Recording Registry and called the Fire Sign Theater the Beatles of Comedy. Two days ago, their new quadruple album, Dope Humor of the 70s, was released. And here to talk about it and other things is Mr. Phil Proctor. Yes, and here he is. All right. Je suis très heureux de passer à Cognac. Je suis très chanté de parler avec vous, mon vieux. Yes, I am ici. So on polyglotte ici. I was always interested in languages. Uh, I was born with a musical gift primarily. And my family in Goshen, Indiana, my Amish Irish family, <clears throat> which, you know, for starters is pretty cool. Uh, uh, everybody sang, everybody harmonized. There was always music in the house, you know, and uh, I have a great uncle whose name is Joseph W. Yoder, who wrote several books about our family, Rosanna of the Amish, which is available in any good Mennonite bookstore, and it's 130th printing right now, and Rosanna's boys, about the, the five boys that were, uh, uh, that they, that she gave birth to, and <clears throat> when she passed away, her husband shaved off his beard, which is a sign of being married, packed the boys into a, a covered wagon, <clears throat> excuse me, and they, went uh, up, up all the way up to Washington State, but the, the weather there was, was not conducive to how he knew how to plant. So they went back and ended up in Goshen, Indiana. He was a, he spoke several languages, Pennsylvania, Dutch, and English, and maybe another. He was, uh, uh, he, he started choral uh, um, teachings in schools in the Midwest. Okay, and he uh, and he also uh, appeared in several minstrel shows when he was, when he was younger. So I feel, and I met him, uh, you know, before he passed away in the fifties. And I feel that I really inherited a lot of my abilities from his his side of the family, from him. Uh, and it's always been a great joy uh, singing. Of course, as you said, boy soprano. Yeah, uh, I was a boy soprano. Yes, I was, which is why I can do all the female voices even now. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, when I was in Allen Stevenson School in New York City, which is a good private school, they had they were very strong uh, for music, and they are even more so now. But they did a, a Gilbert. They do a Gilbert and Sullivan show. Excuse me, <clears throat> I'm very foggy this morning. <clears throat> They do a Gilbert and Sullivan show uh, every year. And of course, it's an all boys school. So I was uh, elected to, or cast, I should say, to play uh, female roles. I played Mabel in uh, Pirates of Penzance. And uh, uh, what did I play in Iolanthe? Oh, I don't know. Nancy. <laughs> I played another part of it. And, and uh, it was really kind of an introduction for me, both to stage and uh, acting and singing, and and I, I just loved it. I felt so comfortable there. You know, um, you read about actors who throw up before they go on stage and all of that and have stage fright. I never have ever had stage fright. The only time I've ever been uncomfortable on stage if it was if I was under rehearsed and I didn't feel confident that I had you know total control of everything. Then I'd be a little nervous. But I, I learned uh, many times in my career that if you make a mistake and you cover it, you'll be okay. I worked with the, the great actor, Pat O'Brien, doing Finian's Rainbow in a tour. Some of your younger listeners may not know who Pat O'Brien is, but you can Google him and you'll find out. He was an amazing uh, Irish-American actor, uh, did ooh, just tons of films. And in his la later life, he played Finian in uh, Finian's Rainbow, and I played Og. I did that several times. I did it at Yale with Sam Waterston as Finian, and then I did it with, with Pat on tour uh, uh, all, all over the East Coast. And one day, 
I'm, uh, Pat is doing one of his speeches, which is, you know, Finian's supposed to be really loquacious and he can really spin a tail. He, he kissed the Blarney Stone, you know. And so Pat is, is going at it. And I'm lying at his feet. I think he's knocked me down, looking up at this great man. And I see him all of a sudden, I see his eyes roll up. And I knew that he had, as they say in the business, gone up. He ghosted. He had forgotten what the next line was. And so I was getting ready to jump in, but he picked it up and he improvised for about a minute, just telling a story of his own invention. He was, he was Finian. And then at a certain point when I saw there was a chance, I said, so you're gonna go see a Sharon then. And it's getting back on track. And, and we carried on with the scene. But anyway, uh, I've been very blessed because I've actually been doing this, acting, singing, writing, directing, uh, uh, voiceover work, films, guest starring, and, and uh, television shows like All in the Family, you know, uh, yeah, and, and, and movies like Henry Jaglum's A Safe Place, Opposite Tuesday Weld with Orson Welles and Jack Nicholson. You know, I toured with Bob Cummings in a, a great play. I toured with Betty White and her then husband, Alan Ludden. And, and all of these people, you know, have influenced me I, and I've learned from them. And, uh, and I've learned from their love because they, they too, everybody I worked with loved what they were doing. And that for me is, is a great blessing. And, uh, and I've been doing it for about 60, about 60 years. I just turned 80, which yeah. is really hard to believe. But anyway, here I am. Yeah, every listen, every interview I've heard of you, I've been do, listening to a lot of interviews. You just have such a like spirit, like you just want to act. You just want to act. You just want to be out there. You want to do voiceover work. You want to be funny. You got like that whole George Burns, hundred hundred and ten. I'll be out there. Yes, indeed. He used to write his lines on his cigar. Okay, did you know that? No, I did not. For people who may not know who the heck I am, this is probably the best way to introduce myself because I, I was Howard on the Rugrats for 14 years. I'm the father of Bill and Lil, the twins. Okay, so that's kind of my entree. And you have no idea how what these little postcards have meant uh, during my travels to various countries. And it actually is the reason why <clears throat> I was uh, cast to do uh, a voiceover role with my wife, Melinda Peterson, who's also a wonderful actress. We've been married 28 years now. We belong to a theater company called the Atias Company in Glendale, which is unfortunately dark right now, but we've done uh, oodles of classical plays there. And uh, we were invited to Ireland to be in a show by the Crazy Dog Audio Theater and a wonderful chap named Roger Gregg, who has been a longtime friend now. And uh, the reason that we were in, able to be uh, cast in this was because of Rugrats. They were playing Rugrats in Ireland, and it was enormously popular. So all he had to say was, uh, Phil Proctor is in Rugrats. He said, ah, bring him over. <laughs> you know, fly, him, fly, him, fly him over. And so uh, we, that was the beginning of a whole series of summer trips to Ireland. And when we uh, go into a pub uh, <laughs> and, and they would somehow, the, the topic would come up about Rugrats or something, or I'd bring it up. And they'd say, what, you're Howard, are you? You're Howard, are you? So I learned how to draw my, my face and sign autographs. And when I got back, I said, oh no, I'm not gonna do that again. <laughs> I'm gonna spring for some postcards. And I'm telling you, that has been in all of our adventures, we had this one Italian adventure in a town called Madeira, Madeira, which is one of the oldest cities. You, you are, are of Italian ancestry, right? No, 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 no. Well, I, okay. What, what ancestry are you? Um, hundred percent. I ancestry.com. hundred percent European Jewish. European Jewish. Yes, let's hear it for the European Jews. No comedy would be here without them, right? You know. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> well, uh, Madeira is uh, the, one of the oldest cities in the entire world. Uh, people have been living there for one thousand years, and they started living in caves. And you can go and visit the caves, which we did. And sit in the caves that these people 
lived in in the Bronze Age, you know, but we got lost in the old city because they don't have signs in Italy. You know, it's it's not like motel this way, you know, no. They have one pole with all of the things, the arrows and things to all the places. And if you miss that pole, that's it, you know. So <clears throat> we got lost in the city. We couldn't get out of it uh, because uh, we're, we're in our car because uh, the streets, they build the streets narrow like this so that if somebody is invading the city, they're gonna get stuck. The war wagon will get stuck and then they can shoot arrows into them and say go home you know so anyway we we finally got out of the out of the the, the place but we couldn't find our hotel so we had nowhere to sleep that night and melinda spotted a, an american bar sports bar or something like that and I said i'll bet we can you know they can tell us where to go uh, yeah, hey well, i tell you where to go you know <laughs> and so we, we we pulled in uh sure enough very friendly wonderful people said yeah there's a hotel just down across from the shell station there's a great hotel you love it so we go we check in it's a great hotel and then we said we have to do something for these people so we drove back and we said can we can we buy you drinks you know and oh no 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 and i said well oh i've got this postcard i said uh I'm Howard on the road. You are Howard on the road. Can you sign? Can you sign? And so that's what I did. I signed a bunch of postcards. And I'm telling you, it's it's a lifesaver. And and the weird thing is, you know, when you have a voiceover career like I have, I've done Pixar movies, and yeah, you know, I actually I've got eight by tens of all the characters that I've done that I start carrying with me, but. Uh, uh, I'll tell you, all right, movies I've been in are Monsters Incorporated, mm -hmm. uh, Toy Story 1 and 2, uh, Inside Out, uh, Finding Nemo, uh, Tarzan, uh, Aladdin. I mean, that's just to name a few. And and also uh, Academy Award winning movies. And also uh, uh, Spirited Away, the great Japanese film, beautiful film. Uh, and, and of course, Nobody knows, you know, if I go into a restaurant, it's not like, oh, Mr. Proctor, come, please. You sit in the front so people can see you, you know. No, they don't know me from Adam, which I played, by the way. And so uh, uh, it, it's it's a mixed blessing. I hear my voice. I did hundreds of television shows and movies over my career and what they call loop groups. Okay, and the loop groups were made up of maybe a dozen, ten to a dozen talented improvisationary comics and comedians, you know, male and female, uh, skilled in improvisation, skilled in dialect, right, and languages. So I was in my element with all these wonderful people. And for about you know, 30 years, I think, I, I uh, was able to do that. And add voices to things. If I look at the movies that are on television, sometimes I say, "Oh, I'm going to make some money tonight." I did that one, and that one, and that one, because you get residuals for all of you, right? For all of the voices that you add to to movies, just just like uh, if you were actually on on camera. Now, if people are interested in, in me, they can get this book. Yeah, that book. Where? Uh, thank you. Where is my fortune cookie? which will not only tell you the history of some of the crazy things that have happened to me, and it's, it's profusely illustrated, as you can see, lots of great pictures, and my career with Firesign Theater uh, and uh, uh, things like that. But it, it also will uh, express the very strange psychic life that I've always had. I, and I don't know about you, but, but for me, a lot of stuff has happened you know, by chance, it appears, and, and and yet it has guided me through my career and through life. You know, uh, it's it, it, it. One thing about our business is we often decry the, the the parts we turned down or the opportunities we didn't take. Okay, and I did a lot of that because of the Fire Sun Theater. I was offered a pilot in Fiji for instance, and I would have loved to have gone and done the pilot. We were performing uh, at, at, a, at a night at a, a club called the Ashgrove, because one of the things the Firesign Theater did, four men, four incredibly smart, funny men who all loved radio. Uh, what, we, what we did was we would, we would write 
some material that we wanted to make into a record once we got a recording contract. And we'd work it out at a club like the Ashland. And I would go out and I'd buy costumes and masks and props and things at the Hollywood toy store. And we'd, we'd let's do a show. We'd throw the show together and, and we had we'd written material. That's where Don't Crush That Dwarf, I mean, the pliers came from. It was originally called A Life in the Day. And it was a, a television, a show based on clicking, changing channels in the television. We were basically- um, uh, Channel surfing. Prognosticating the uh, uh, remote, the remote, uh, and and uh, a lot of our other pieces came out of things like that. Um, um, I think we're all bozos on this bus, which was okay. Again, for people who don't know who we are, uh, we 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 got a contract with Columbia Records because Peter Bergman had a show on KPFK, listener-supported Pacifica Radio, called Radio Free Odds. And it was a call-in, new age talk show. And he would, you know, uh, he was a great twisted straight man host. And he'd interview gurus and Hopi Indians and, you know, tarot card readers and things like that. And uh, I, to make a long story longer, uh, I, uh, uh, when I came out here with, with, okay, I came out here first with this show uh, where, which I won a, the a theater world award for called uh, The Amorous Flea, a musical based on Moliere's School for Wives. And, and, I went, I, and, and then I had to go back to do a Broadway show called The Time for Singing. And uh, when that show closed, I got cast as an understudy to Brandon DeWilda, who was a child star. Shane. If anyone ever saw Shane, right? Shane, come back, Shane. That was Brandon. And Brandon, uh, he was working on on a musical career. He wanted to to uh, he learned to play the guitar and he was singing and doing stuff, hanging out with Graham Parsons and the Submarine Band and all kinds. I mean, I met all these great people in New York because we were, we were very close friends. And then we drove out to L.A. together, connected up with Peter Fonda. Everybody knows who Peter Fonda is, and uh, rest his soul. And and the three of us were hanging out together and having a ball together, and we heard about a demonstration that was going to happen on the Sunset Strip, and it was uh, they were imposing a curfew on uh, kids in the Sunset Strip. So because they were protesting the Vietnam War, they were openly smoking pot. You know, uh, uh, sex was rampant. Oh, those are the days. <laughs> and so we decided to go down because Peter was writing a movie. Uh, originally called Captain America, and he wanted to do some research because it was about the youth revolution. And that movie later was made, and I think it was called, let's see, Easy Rider. Okay, so so we all go down together to, to participate in this event. And at one point, we're, I'm doing a sit down. We're not going to move because we got the cops on one side and the sheriffs on the other with their batons and their their helmets and they're ready to move in on us all. And so we're not going to move. And I, I sat on an open copy of the L.A. Free Press, which was a radical newspaper at that time. And I pulled it out from under my butt. I had sat down on Peter Bergman's face. I hadn't seen Peter Bergman since Yale when he wrote the lyrics for several musicals I starred in, written by Austin Pendleton, called uh, Tom Jones and Booth is Back in Town. He, he, he'd shown up in New York and we'd had a brief encounter, but then he went off to Germany to make movies or things. I had no idea where he was. So I, it said KPFK newsman, Peter Bergman, interviews returning Vietnam War vets. So I said, KPFK news. Oh, he's at, he's at KPFK. So the next day after, let's see, uh, Peter got, got beaten up, Brandon got arrested. I was writing for the LA Free Press and I held up a card which had a big eye on it actually. And the car, I said, press, press. And the cops just they went around me like a knife through, a hot knife through butter. So I was okay. But the next day I call up Peter Bergman. He says, yeah, I'm the Wizard of Oz. I, I'm on this, I created this show, Radio Free Oz. So come on down, let's play together. So I go down and I meet these two other guys, Phil Austin and David Osman. And because Peter was doing a new age show, he determined that we were all fire signs. He's a Sagittarian, 
Dave Osman's a Sagittarian. I'm a Leo. And, uh, and good old uh, late Phil Austin was an Aries, I'm sorry to say. And you can see us in our uh, various astrological characters on the cover of Don't Crush That Door, Handy the Pliers, which was painted by uh, Bob Grossman, also the late Bob Grossman, uh, who was Peter Bergman's roommate at Yale. So you see it's already beginning to, <laughs> to get magical, you know? And, and we found that the, the four of us found that we had two major things in common. We loved the English goon shows with Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers, Harry Seacom. And we loved old time radio because we, you know, we grew up listening to the radio when we were kids, right? So we, when we had an opportunity to do an album which was based on the popularity of Radio Free Oz. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, 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 Phil and, and Peter both said, well, you, you, no, let's not do a, a, a Radio Free Oz album. Let's do the Oz Fire Sunny Theater album. Because by then, we had been working together and improvising together. And we really knew that you know, we, were, we were attracting an audience. And we knew that we, were, we had something. So uh, Gary Usher, who from Columbia, said, do anything you want. Man, those are the days. So we we go into the studio and we lay. Oh wait, no wait, no wait. So I knew now that we were going to be making records. Uh, I had a career, so I went back to New York to close up my apartment on West Eleventh Street, right up from the White Horse Cafe. And uh, once I made sure all that was taken care of, I uh, I moved in with a, a friend. Uh, well, she wasn't a friend with a lover named Diana Dew. Uh, and her and her roommate, those were the days, uh, across from Natchez, Kansas City. All right, and Diana Dew had invented electric clothing for the disco. She had translucent panels in dresses, in, in like vinyl dresses that would light up and could move around because they had a little control on the belt. It was amazing when when uh, she she was working for a company called Expera Puritanius, which she had created uh, uh, from Puritan fashions. And when finally she left that business, Salvador Dali bought all of her stock. I mean, come on. So anyway, <clears throat> we're we're living together. I had met her originally in California uh, because she had an affair with Brandon DeWilda and great, great person. Uh, and at a certain point, it was just like, okay, I got to go now. The, the, the affair is over. I have a destiny in California. I got to go. So I said, I'm going to have to have a talk with her and tell her. So we go downstairs and, and I'm starting to say, you know, Diana, it's been great, but ring, and the phone rings. And, and she picks it up. She says, it's for you. And I get on, I say, hello, it's Peter Bergman. And he says, there's a ticket waiting for you at Black Rock, the Rockefeller Plaza, to fly back to LA as soon as you can. And we're going to start our first record, waiting for the electrician or someone like him. Okay. And during when we went to do that record, <clears throat> we got connected with uh, James William Guercio, uh, who, uh, who was the manager of Chicago, okay, and the Illinois Speed Press. So when we went in to do our record, the first side of it are shorter skits. And the second side is a long piece waiting for the electrician or someone like him. Uh, he hired a band. He brought in a band to give us original music. It was the Wrecking Crew. Glenn Campbell was on the guitar. We didn't know any of this. You know, this is our first album. We're, we're nothing but a bunch of rock and roll comics, you know? So <clears throat> anyway, the, the second part of the second side of the album, we, we invented the long form LP. We, we said, you know, like a radio show, comic surrealistic, like the goon show, crazy, wacky, brain associated movie for the mind adventure. Okay. Integrating music and, and sound effects and uh, carried lots of characters. <clears throat> and one of the things that we did, we predicted, that we created for that show was a quiz show called Beat the Reaper. You remember this? Yeah. And Beat the Reaper was uh, 
the contestant, Phil Austin, was injected with a mystery disease, and he had 30 seconds to diagnose it and say what it was so that our topless nurse, Judy, could come in and give him the antidote. Well, the last disease that they injected him with, which was farther than anyone had ever gone before on this show, he couldn't, he felt that bad, I did my headaches, I feel, <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know. And, and the Peter Bergman, the MC says, oh, I'm sorry, you got the plague. The, the audience goes, you know, what with the plague? What, 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 and, and, and he escapes from the studio and he's, he's desperately trying to get out of the country and he, he flags down a, oh yeah, and people are touching him to get the plague from him because he's a celebrity, okay? They, they want to be part of that celebrity, even if it means death. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Huh? Huh? And, and so he finally uh, manages to escape and gets to the other side of the record. Because kids in those days, records had two sides. And in our, our latest release, uh, 35 years after our last vinyl release, we are releasing Dope Humor of the 70s, which is a, a madcap collection of funny short pieces that we did on the radio because we had a long radio career on many different stations okay and it's got four sides you know <laughs> it's absolutely amazing beautiful artwork big old thing it is also available as a download and if you from stand up records stand up records and if you get the download you also will get a, a, a booklet in, you know whatever you call it a cyber book with all kinds of uh, scripts the original scripts and the writing and the uh, on the scripts and everything and uh and, and pictures and all kinds of other zany things but dope humor of the 70s represents probably the height of our radio improvisation career uh what we would basically do oh yeah and and I, if you want to hear even more of our radio years uh, there's a book that you can get if you go to firesidepeter.com called Duke of Madness Motors. Do you know anything about this? It has a, an MP3 in it yeah. of 80 hours of our stuffs. Okay. And it's, it's a, a story of our radio history as told by each one of us. And it has my art collages in it. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, and there's all kinds of other crazy stuff that you can get at firesidepeter.com. But, uh, uh, right now, dope humor, humor, dope humor, dope humor of the uh, of the seventies uh, is what we're we're very proud and happy to be able to release after so many years. It's a collector's item. They're only printing pressing five hundred of them, and you know I don't know if you know this, Ian, but last year vinyl records outsold CDs. How about that? Mm. Like, so I get you know I guess the nostalgia. Uh, for 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 the, the sound, the rich sound of those records has reached uh, the point where people are collecting them again and listening to them again. It's, and we hope to be part of that wave. I was lucky enough. I felt like a big shot. I got an advanced copy, and uh, yeah. and it was really funny. I you know I listened to it. Maybe it took me three days. You know, an hour. <laughs> Well, you know, these days you've got three days. By the way, see this this coffee cup I'm I'm using. Mm -hmm. This is a, a a wonderful guy called Elfindo. All right, as this says here, I survived Elfindo, and he was uh, a, a writer director that we all absolutely adored, uh, and uh, and he used to do all kinds of great comic <laughs> recordings. Also, you see this thing back here, this record. Mm -hmm. This is uh, an acknowledgement from the uh, Library of Congress in the United States of America that uh, our archives, well, first of all, though, of course, that, that dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, was initiated as a historical recording. And they flew us down for a press conference. We had lunch in the library, got to see all the secret passageways and everything. It was absolutely wonderful. And then uh, a couple of years later, they purchased our archives for a, a tidy sum. And David Osman and I, who were at that point, well, 
Phil Austin was still alive, but he didn't like to fly. So, and Peter had passed away. So David and I put together a show called The History of a Radio. And we performed it at the Library of Congress in this very nice theater, the Hoover Theater or something, I don't know what it's called. And, uh, uh, and, and we're able to meet the people who were purchasing all of our stuff. And, and then they eventually sent a truck out to our storage space, right? And, and, oh, and I have to mention here a, a fellow named Taylor Jessen. Taylor Jessen is our archivist. He produced Dope Humor of the 70s. And he drew most of the material from a radio show that we did for quite a long time called Dear Friends. And in the original album of Dear Friends, David Osman was the producer. Okay, uh, and there's another credit I have to 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 uh, acknowledge. Uh, when we did our show, it was primarily improvised. It'd be like an hour around a table with an audience sitting on the floor around us, you know, in the basement of a church or some Pasadena or someplace, and we would bring in material that we knew, well, we hope would make the other guys laugh or would kick off a stream of improvisation, okay? And, uh, and our engineer was a guy named The Real Earl Jive. And you'll see him on the cover of, of the album, which I have downstairs, I should have brought it. He's lying on the floor under the table next to our late producer, Bill McIntyre. But Earl Jive, he used to drop sound effects and music in on us totally unexpectedly <laughs> so not only do we have to improvise with one another right. but we would have to improvise with with earl because of what what he thought was appropriate or a funny thing to take us in another direction oh we had so much fun in those days and and as i say we were amassing material for our records our second record was called how can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all which is where we are right now, okay? Uh, another predictive record. And uh, and on the flip side of that is Nick Danger, Third Eye, which became our big hit. And the reason that it got on the record was we were doing another, we were doing a show, Fireside Show, on another stage, KPCC, KCPP, KFU, I don't know. And we were going to do Nick Danger, as a radio serial. So Sunday afternoon, when our show was on the air, we drive down to the studio uh, with, with our scripts, only to discover that it's padlocked. They had sold it, okay? So instead of being, you know, a free rock and roll, free talk, new, new age radio, it was now a cynic cowboy or something, you know? And so we said, well, what are we gonna do with this? And we said, well, you know, the records do have two sides. So let's put it on one. And we did. And it was, you know, it introduced us to a much wider audience because people could, could, could glom onto the idea that we were making fun of detective shows, okay, and detective movies. Whereas so many of the other things that we did were totally surrealistic and, and out in the ether. And then our third album, don't catch that book. Okay, but the reason that we were even able to do these things was because of a guy at Columbia called John McClure. Again, no longer with us. This is, this is, this is the downside of living a long life, folks, you know. But I'm carrying all these people inside of me. I'm sharing them with you. So they, they, they still live in, in, in an odd way. Oh, and by the way, Today is Peter Bergman's birthday. Okay. Happy birthday, Peter, wherever you are. So, John McClure. Uh, yesterday was my birthday. It's your birthday, yeah, too? Yesterday, yesterday. Are you kidding? Yesterday, yeah. Wow. Well, happy birthday to us. <laughs> when you said you were. When you oh, said you boy. got it. Uh, just just don't sorry. blow the candles out my way, okay? Because <laughs> I don't have my mask on. All right. So, <clears throat> John McClure goes into a meeting and Fireside Theater had come out with its first album, Everything You Know Is Wrong. No, no, that was later, sorry. Everything I Know Is Wrong, uh, Waiting for the Electrician. And, you know, the suits didn't know, what are you gonna do with these guys? Who, who are these guys, you know? 
we weren't a rock and roll band and you know rec the record industry was starting to take off now and you know the rolling stones and and bob dylan and phil oaks and oh i i can't even crosby stills nash and young was all starting to happen and uh and so john mcclure said well you know and they said well so let's drop them let's not renew their contract and mcclure said no no, no, you've got to you gotta keep these guys on the label. They're geniuses, they're comic geniuses. They've invented the long form comedy album and, and, and we've got to keep them on the label. And he said, here's what I'll do. I'll sign them to a spoken arts contract, okay? And that will give them unlimited free studio time in exchange for a reduced royalty. Well, we didn't believe in royalty anyway, so that's okay. We were four hippies, you know, hippie comics. And that is why we were able to make these complex albums because we could have a writing session and then say, okay, let's let's take it in and, and record it and see what, where it's going, okay? And that's what we do. We go in the studio, usually at 10 at night or something after the other, you know, acts were all gone and we would lay down tracks and when we did that we discovered once again that no, no matter how we agonized over the writing when we got to playing it together the script would just go out out of the uh, out of our hands uh, because it would be so it would come come alive and i know several uh, fans that i've talked to say that one of the things they like about the Fireside theater albums is that they sound spontaneous because in many ways they were you know, so our third, and, and that album, Don't Crush That Door, Enemy of the Pliers, which is a whole long story on two sides, uh, it, it became popular because FM radio started, okay? And people on, uh, especially kids in colleges who could have an FM radio station, they could play a half an hour rep cut, you know, without commercial interruption. And so the, our, the base of our audience grew and that allowed us to tour because, you know, the, the, the Columbia said, okay, you guys are hot now. Let's get you out on the road and sell records. And so indeed we played big venues, the Beacon Theater and the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium and, and Carnegie Hall. Fireside Theater played Carnegie Hall. I mean, the, the whole touring years thing was a, a tremendous adventure. And I really loved it. The only glitch in it, Phil Austin didn't like the fly. And he liked to travel with his wife, Una, and their four dogs. So they had a little Volkswagen bus or something like that. And they would drive to our gigs. So we had to time our gigs on in terms of enough time him, for him to get there. Yeah, getting there for the for the rehearsal <clears throat> for the tech. And, and, and the rest of us, we'd fly in and promote for two or three days. So it was fine. It worked out to be fine. But uh, ultimately, uh, the next album, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that happened on, on the road, we played Berkeley, or Berserkly, as we call it, which is still a hotbed of, of progressivism and radicalism uh, in upstate California. And... Uh, uh, we signed records afterwards at a record store. And when uh, Taylor Jessen, our archivist, was going through material to sell, to give to uh, the Library of Congress, he came across a contact sheet of a uh, film that had been taken, a picture that had been taken of us, signing records at this record store. And there was this tall, kind of gawky, long-haired, uh, goateed hippie type person in a black shirt and everything standing posing with us and we realized later it was steve jobs okay but steve jobs was a huge fireside fan when i met him at uh the uh, uh part of the cast and crew party for a bug's life up at pixar he had just he bought into Pixar so that he could apply, he could help them uh, uh, make, make computer animation even better, you know. 
being a little inarticulate, but you get the idea. He was in on the ground floor and wanted to help them uh, create their, their studio. And when I met him, he said, I'm a big fan of yours. And I said, oh, that's, that's great. Well, here's what happened. We did an album called, I think we're all bozos on this bus. And that album was inspired by a program, an early computer program called Eliza. Did you ever hear about it? It was, yeah. it was a, a, a psychiatrist program and interactive so that, you know, like you type something like, you know, um, I, I ate an ice cream cone before I came here. And, and, and then it would type back, and how do you feel about that now? You know, and I say, I, I feel quite full. So is this how you satisfy yourself if you're feeling lonely? Okay, so I go to this, this job fair where this program is being demonstrated and it's all being typed out on this yellow paper, long, endless reams of paper. And, and uh, most of the paper, when they, you know, uh, tore it off, went into a wastebasket, into a big cardboard basket. And I reached in and I pulled out as much as I could and I took it to the writing session and we made an album about interacting with a computer right. 1971 i think it was and uh, uh and we created a thing called the future fair which used holograms and other techniques animatronic figures uh to sell people on the idea that the government was good and was doing good things for them and they had an automated president and uh, uh and and basically my character clem uh, I was a, 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 a disenfranchised worker. I'd been fired from the, the, the future fair. And I was, you know, like a computer guy. So I, this is what basically the plot was. Without the words, I was a hacker. And I, I hacked into the mainframe computer, Dr. Memory, direct readout memory. And I planted a virus, which was a Zen question that the computer could not answer in yes or no. Why does the porridge bird lay his egg in the air? And it destroyed the computer and made the illusion of the future fair disappear. Okay? We had earlier broken the president by asking him questions he couldn't answer. And the president was, of course, Richard Nixon. So we were predicting right there the downfall of Nixon, and we were predicting the uh, the growth of the computer industry and we were and, and, and hacking ai and viruses you know come on what what and, and and so and it was so interesting that uh uh when i first got my first iphone and i'm sorry to say i can't demonstrate this now because for some reason they removed it but for about 10 years if you would say to the iphone uh this is worker speaking hello which is what i said to get into the computer, okay? Uh, Siri would say back to you, uh, hello, Clem, what service can I perform for you? LOL. But she'd do it like this. Hello, Clem, what service can I perform for you? LOL. It was Steve Jobs' homage to the Firesign Theater. Did I tried it when I read the book. Was that? I tried it when I read the book. It, they just discontinued it. But the other so, one still works, though, the porridge bird. Yeah, if you, if you ask, why does a porridge bird lay his egg in the air, it'll say, you can't shut me down that easily, right? Right. <laughs> but but that's Steve Jobs. That was an homage from Steve Jobs. And again, uh, the, the, the reason why I stayed with the Firestone Theater, in spite of the fact that I'd go off and do a movie or a, a, a guest star in a television show, was because... It was a cultural event. We were part of the changing culture. We were influencing the culture. And, you know, you just can't say no to that. You know, we had our ups and our downs. We had terrible arguments, we wouldn't talk for years. One of the main things that happened was uh, Peter Bergman, pardon me, um, Dave Osman and Phil Austin wanted to do more records. And at a certain point, uh, uh, Peter and I, Bergman and I said, you know, that's all well and good, but we really should 
meet our audiences. We should go out and promote ourselves more. And so we formed a splinter group, half the wits of the Firestein Theater, Proctor and Bergman. And we toured. Okay. And that was when uh, Phil Austin did a solo album. We did an album. Proctor and Bergman did, I think, three albums for Mercury Records. Uh, and uh, Phil Austin did his Roller Mains from Outer Space album. Uh, Dave Osman did his Mark Time album, highly recommended. And then together, they wrote a piece called In the Next World You're On Your Own. And we were invited to perform on that record. So what we were doing was, we were promoting the Firesign Theater with a two-man touring group. And we were, you know, we'd fly and jump out of planes. We, we, we did everything that the group couldn't do because of the limitations of time and space and Phil Austin's, you know, uh, uh, regretful uh, desire not to fly and all that kind of stuff. So we kept the Firesign Theater presence alive. And we got to play Canada. We got to play oh, almost all the states in the, in the Union. And, and really, you know, get a, a taste and a feel of the culture and how it was changing and what was happening, which we could then bring back to the group when we reunited, uh, which we did. We reunited several times. We had a 25th anniversary uh, a pro, uh, a performance that we toured West Coast. And, and later on in our career, we did big shows. I mean, we had costumes and special effects and music and lighting. And, uh, it was, it was, you know, a big show. But we, as we got older, we pared it down until finally, at the end of our career as a four-man group, we would read scripts with microphones and and add sound effects with our with things that we had, little devices, and. It was like going back to the beginnings of letting people see how we did it, you know, pay some attention to the man behind the curtain. And it was very successful. And we toured primarily the West Coast uh, with that show until Peter Bergman passed away. <clears throat> and then uh, Phil Austin. And then, we did, and then we didn't do the show anymore after that. And then Phil Austin passed away. But David and I are still here. And we perform maybe every now and again. <laughs> I saw an evening with David Osman and Phil Proctor of Firestein Theater on YouTube. Yes, that was the show at the Library of Congress. Right. Okay, that was the history of radio, or the art of the history of radio or something like that. And speaking of radio, uh, I do a podcast now with another great Firestein Theater friend, Ted Bonnet, who collaborated with Peter Bergman doing radio ads for movies, trailers, radio trailers for decades. And we have a show called Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, which you can listen to at sexyboomershow.com, okay? Sexyboomershow.com. And we interview people who are friends of ours, uh, who've had some success in the industry, like Ben Jolette, Weird Al Yankovic, uh, John Goodman, my my uh, co-star co in Rugrats, Melanie Chartoff. Uh, uh, oh my gosh, just a whole bunch of wonderful, wonderful people. And you can, you know, if you visit our website, uh, sexyboomershow.com, you'll see the lineup of all the people that we've interviewed so far. And we're editing together several other interviews. Uh, I did a play that was written by Dan Castellanata, Homer, Homer Simpson, uh, called For Piano and Harpo, which was a wonderful story of uh, Oscar Levant's friendship with Harpo Marx in Hollywood. And I played numerous roles. Um, uh, and, and it was a very, very wonderful show. We did it at the Gary Marshall Theater. Uh, I really wish we, we could tour it or do something else. It was a beautiful, wonderful show. But uh, Dan, uh, why am I mentioning that? Well, I guess because uh, we, we want to interview Dan and he'll probably be uh, one of the, the people in the next, you know, the, the next iteration of the show. That's so great. we're having a lot of fun. That's great. A um, couple things, if you don't mind. Um, I'm a big fan. I always grew up a big fan of Harry Anderson. And I know you were good friends with him as well as. I'm going to show you something and then okay. I'll tell you the story. Hold on. 
Okay, here's another of my cup collection. And it's and it says Dave's World. Okay, Harry, most people know he was the judge on Night Court. My favorite television show. A great television show. And I guess starred on it three, three times. times. It was fun. But you see here on the other side, it says, I got my mug on Dave's World. <laughs> I got my mug on Dave's World. That's Harry's sense of humor. Absolutely. Uh, now, the, the way we met Harry, Dr. Bergman were touring. And we were playing Austin, Texas, which is, you know, the hip heart of, uh, of, of the Lone Star State. And we needed an opening act because the guy who was going to open for us in this gig. He was the owner of the club and he had some act that he was doing in a gorilla suit. And we said, no, no, it's not going to work. No. no. So uh, we see this guy doing magic at the bar. And uh, hi, I'm Phil Proctor, Peter Bergman. Oh, yeah, Fireside Theater. I don't know. Harry Anderson. Oh, hi, nice to meet you. I said, listen, we, we need an opening act. You're you're a magician. Yeah, yeah. And do you have an act you can do for us? Oh, sure, sure. So, so he does his needle through the arm illusion, right? And all kinds of great stuff. And we and we, you know, we shared the money with him and and sent him on his way. And we go off and tour around. And uh, maybe a little while later, we are we're in Houston. And there's Harry, okay, playing the bar again. Because he was playing, he was doing all of his, his con man stuff uh, and, and street magic and all that in, uh, in the coast, okay? So we say, hey, Harry, we, we have a whole new show now. It's a new age type show. Uh, do you have anything that you, you, know, you could do? He said, oh yeah. So he comes out, the opening act, wearing a dashiki, I guess you call it, with, with Christmas lights under it. Little Christmas lights, psychedelic, right? <laughs> and he does this whole new show with mind reading and all kinds of great things. So we say to him after, we say, you know, Harry, you, you really got the stuff. You should really come out to L.A. I think you could be successful. And see ya. Next thing I know, I'm guest starring on his television show. Okay, two of his television shows. Uh, he had an enormous success, well-deserved success. He has always been a friend. And we were actually with Harry and his wife, Elizabeth, in, uh, uh, what's it, in uh, Ashgrove. Ashgrove? Asheville. 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 <laughs> Forget my ash. Uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, at his, his wonderful house. He had a couple of places down there, but this was his new house. He's the only guy I know who had two electric chairs at his house. Okay? Ben Gillette has one. Harry <laughs> had two. In case one didn't work. I don't know. So anyway, we, we, had, we spent a wonderful uh, uh, weekend, couple of days with Harry, three or four days actually, uh, in, in his house in Asheville. And he died of the flu about two months later. Come on, just horrible. Uh, but, you know, again, he's one of those people that had a terrific effect on us. Uh, he, he, he introduced me to my first computer because I used to do an act. Part of the Proctor Bergman Act was a character named Dr. Astro, who read people's mind. You know, I, you know, I did silly astrological readings and things. And uh, at one point in the act, I'm going, hey, I'm getting strong vibrations from somewhere good 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 vibrations I went, wait, 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 here, here. and i'd walk into the crowd and i'd go up to a, a pretty girl and uh, i'd say yeah, you 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 you're so powerful what let, let me what's this in your purse and i'd pull out a, a vibrator from her purse my gag i mean I, harry stole the gag so when he was doing commercials for computers, the first Macs, I don't know if you remember that, he was the spokesman for the Mac, Mac Macintosh. He would, at the end of a day's shoot, pick up every computer and give them to his friends. And he, he admitted to me, he said, Phil, I uh, borrowed this bit from you and here, this is my payment. And he gave me my first computer. Okay. Uh, later on, he did a bunch of ads for a fax machine. And when we talked uh, during that time, 
because at that time also our kids were all playing together. Uh, he said, I have to admit, I stole something else from you, Bill. So here's a fax machine. <laughs> he, he gave me my first fax machine, too. Uh, my daughter, Kristen, who is now GASP, 47 years old, and my grandson, Bowen, celebrated his 12th birthday four days ago. And my daughter, Audrey, uh, my granddaughter, Audrey, is nine. They live five minutes away from me. Uh, here in Benedict Canyon, which is wonderful. So I get to see them all the time. But uh, uh, she, uh, you know, Kristen grew up playing with Harry Anderson's kids. Okay. And, and Dashiell and, oh, I can't remember. Eva? Eva. Dashiell and Eva. Because she's a comedian yeah. now. You know Eva, very funny I'm writer. Not, I, I've never met her, but I just know she's a writer and a wonderful funny writer so so we you know we got to hang out with with uh, harry in many different homes that he had he had one home uh on las filas which was busby berkeley's old home again for you kids out there don't have right. any sense of history busby berkeley was the, the the direct choreographer director who would do all those movies sh the shooting on the ceiling with all the, the ladies' legs doing in a circle, doing various wonderful patterns and things. Well, <laughs> we were we, the kids were playing in Busby Berkeley's old place. I mean, come on, give me a break. So much fun. Uh, I miss Harry very, very much, uh, and and he certainly died far too young. But he, uh, like Peter Bergman, has left tremendous uh, uh, gift of comedy and. And in his case, television shows people can still see. I uh, The reason I do this podcast is Harry Anderson and Fred Willard were two people I always wanted to meet. And I never got a chance to meet them. And I said, well, I better do something. If I want to ever get a chance to talk to any of these people, I want to be able to have the opportunity to talk to them. And it's because of those those two gentlemen that I have, I decided to do a podcast. Is I'm, like, I'm not letting any I'm not letting anybody else that I like die before I get a chance to talk to them. Oh, good, thank God. That's a good thing. Uh, but Fred was another great, great friend uh, for decades, and his darling wife Mary, she was a, a, a party animal. She she created parties that kept our community, our comic community together. Huge, wonderful parties where we, you know, Steve Bluestein, uh, Larry Hankin, all kinds of, of, of people who influenced us, who were in the committee and in uh, Second City and all that. Because uh, Fred was a great improvisation, mm. uh, improvisateur. And he had his own group. Of, uh, uh, the other fellow who was a member of that is Paul Wilson from uh, uh, Cheers. Off the Wall? The group yeah, Paul. No, the yeah. group Off the Wall? Or, or you're talking about the um, Ace Trucking Company? The Ace Trucking Company. Oh, he Trucking. wasn't part of the Ace Trucking Company. Paul Wilson was in Cheers, the television right, show. Right, But, yeah, the Ace Trucking Company, when uh, Firesign was touring around, uh, they were playing, too. We, we actually, uh, it, it was either them or probably on, uh, there's, a, there's a picture of Mary I have uh, and, and her uh, daughter, Hope, pointing at a big sign uh, advertising Ace Trucking Company and Procter & Burton, let's say, or Fireside Theater. I don't remember. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Uh, uh, anyway, so that was a terrific friendship that lasted a very long time. And their house over in Encino was always filled with joy and fun. Uh, she'd have a, a Fourth of July party where we'd set off fireworks on their on their uh, tennis tennis court and march around with flags and things, and she'd do a Christmas party that was just we'd all sing carols, you know, and tell funny stories, and uh, and what was the other one that she did? Anyway, she would have these great parties. Now, I'm about ready to travel to Scotland. This is now maybe three or four years ago with my wife, Melinda, who is Scottish and Swedish. And we love Scotland. So we're going to travel to Scotland. And uh, uh, the day before, the day before uh, I'm to travel, I had a 
we call it a heart attack, logarithmia was called. It's a speeded up heartbeat. And I have a nice pacemaker in here now and I'm fine. But a few days before that, Mary Willard died unexpectedly of a carotid aneurysm. He was supposed to go in for a procedure and the night before the procedure, she died. So that day, the day before I'm flying to Scotland, the day I have my heart attack, it was her memorial, okay, out at uh, Forest Lawn. So my darling wife, Melinda, went to the memorial to represent us. And everybody at one point went down to the plot where she was resting and deer showed up and came up and just kind of were there for the, the ceremony. And Fred and Mary were great animal lovers and uh, actors and others for animals was one of their great charities. I just think that's just magical. So, you know, they're gone. My grandfather used to say, they're united. My you know. grandfather used to say this is, that's his Cadillac, his pacemaker. What's that about a Cadillac? I said my grandfather used to call his pacemaker his Cadillac. Oh, his Cadillac. Because it cost yeah. about as much as if he bought a Cadillac. Oh, well, you know, thank God. Up to up to recently, uh, the the union, SAG and AFTRA, have had a wonderful health healthcare program that, you know, has taken care of all of all of these events in my life. Now, because of COVID, uh, they're going to be changing it. They're going to be dropping the SAG-AFTRA health plan. And so we and many other actors are going to have to start looking around for, you know, a program that we can uh, pay into to maintain our health care because I'm old. <laughs> anyway, you, you know, you just have to go with the flow. Uh, my favorite line from Shakespeare is from Hamlet, and the line is, the readiness is all. And that's the way I've lived my life. The readiness is all. You just got to go with the flow, you know, live every day as if it's your last or as if it's your first. And uh, how can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all? Okay, well, thank you very much for coming on. And I'm going to put all the links to all the things that you we've discussed in the thank link you. section. And it was very nice meeting you. I, I'm almost going, I'm almost going to shake my hand. Wait, wait, I'll tell you one other thing. Okay. If anybody wants to know what I'm up to or Fireside uh, plans to do next, you can go to uh, planetproctor.com and sign on to my week, my monthly blog profusely illustrated and you'll see samples of it uh planetproctor.com it'll give you a, a laugh in hard times and it'll make you think and uh it'll be something that you want to share pieces of with your friends planetproctor.com and you can also get in touch with me at philproctor at mac.com if you feel so inclined just don't come and knock on the door <laughs> okay thank you very much and, and you know, I thought your show was Ian talks funny, but it turns out you, you talk like a normal human being. Oh, and then okay. I look, oh, talks comedy, right? <laughs> so I'm glad you didn't talk funny. <laughs> Leave it to me. Did you ever meet Jonathan Winters by any way? Yeah, I worked with him. Uh, I did a movie called um, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Okay. Uh, the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Unfortunately, not a successful film, but everybody was in it. Uh, I uh, and Robert De Niro right. was uh, worked with him and, and everything. And uh, Dave Thomas and Renee Russo and Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, uh, you probably know this. Did you ever interview Jonathan? No. Well, he was on the edge most of the time. He occasionally he'd go and commit himself. You know, like people go into rehab, right. he'd, go, he'd go into psychohab, right? And just kind of pull himself together again. But what he, when, when we, we met uh, on the set, 
his major complaint was nobody wants to work with me anymore. Nobody's nobody's putting me on television. Nobody's doing. And that's this was before all of this wonder, you know, because now you can Google Jonathan and giggle with Jonathan all you want. But then you had to wait until somebody said, hey, come on, be in my movie, you know, or come on, be in my television show. And there were very, there were very few alternatives. So I was a little saddened by that, but he was a lovely man. I loved him very much. All right. Well, thanks again. All right. All right. So goodbye to you all. Keep your head down and stay safe and keep your mask on. Yeah. And stay safe. Okay. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye, Ian. Bye.